Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Today's stories are about the not-so-sweet side of Alabama. We're going to talk about a creature photographed by a police chief in Alabama. And the creature was known as the Metal Man. I'd never heard of it until I started doing a little research. Very cool. And I'm going to point out the show notes for this one because you want to look at the picture you want to go to the website and in the show notes is the link for the website so you can go take a look at the pictures of the metal man. Another story is about the white fang and I'm not being goofy here that's what it's called the white fang t-h-a-n-g never heard of this guy either very interesting. A couple more stories from Alabama so sit back relax and hope you enjoy these stories of not-so-sweet Alabama. The Wampus Cat When residents of Trustville, Alabama began to discover their pet cats and small dogs slaughtered by an animal in 2014, official thoughts went to coyotes. But according to the Mobile, Alabama Press Register, Canines didn't match eyewitness reports. One unnamed witness told the newspaper, Several of the residents have confirmed it is a feline creature. It jumps tall fences and is extremely quick. This spectral, panther-sized beast 
has been reported across the American Southeast for centuries. Although there are numerous legends about the origin of the cat, the following two are most common in Alabama. The first legend comes from the American Indian tradition. A Cherokee woman, suspicious of her husband's hunting trips, dressed in the skin of a mountain lion and followed the hunting party into the woods. She came upon the hunters sitting around a fire, listening to stories about magic. She hids, staying to hear these stories that were forbidden to women. The men discovered her and cursed her to spend eternity as a half-woman, half-mountain lion. The second legend is slightly more modern, but just as magical. According to the McDowell News of Marion, North Carolina, during World War II, the United States military succeeded in crossbreeding mountain lions and gray wolves in rural Alabama in an attempt to create a species of intelligent, vicious creatures to use as messengers in a war zone. A few males and females of the species escaped the military compound and began to breed in the wild, becoming what is known as the wampus cat. From Exploring American Monsters, Alabama, we have the legend of the White Fang. Reports of the White Fang date back to the 1930s, and reports of the monster vary. It's been described as everything from a dog to a Bigfoot to a ghost, but two things are constant. The monster's long white hair and its scream. In the book Legends and Lore of Birmingham and Central Alabama by Beverly Kreider, George Norris, an eyewitness in the 40s, saw the monster and said, It looked like a lion, you know, bushy, betwixt a dog and a lion. It was white and slick with long hair. It had a slick tail, down to the end of the tail, a big old bush of hair. The monster, although in the 1930s, was said to run on all fours, even climbing trees to wait for people to walk underneath it. In later decades, it's been described as upright and at least seven feet tall, although witnesses say they can't make out any features of the face or hands. But it's not the beast's appearance or behavior that causes fright. People who've encountered the white fang say it's really non-threatening. It's the monster scream that shatters people's spirits. The shriek like a woman or a baby crying, not only barks in the dark woods at night. Witnesses have heard the sound come from the hulking white-haired monster as it looms over them and screeches into their face. The Wikipedia page for William Bill Skeeto tells of a very real man with a legend that has been handed down for 160 years. Skeeto, a Confederate soldier, was hanged in Newton in 1864. 
Reasons for the hanging depend on the version of the story. According to legend, a shallow hole was dug beneath his feet so he could be hanged properly because he was so tall. After the hanging, the hole remained. No matter how many times it was filled, the hole that wouldn't stay filled was included in Catherine Tucker Wyndham's beloved book, 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey. Today, a memorial to Skeeto marks the site of the hole. I think this one's pretty cool, even though it's, it's short and sweet. Not so sweet, Alabama. But can you imagine if there was a hole that just wouldn't stay filled? Good way to get rid of some garbage. Hmm? Okay, on to the next. The Legend of Alabama's Dead Children's Playground Adjoining Huntsville's historic Maple Hill Cemetery is a playground that looks much like any other. It features some modern, modern swing sets and climbing apparatus. But this playground isn't like others. Passersby often say they can see the swings moving on their own volition, as well as orbs or spectral figures. The playground is surrounded on three sides by the limestone that formed many caves in the area, giving it a shadowed appearance that lends itself to spooky legends. The proximity to the historic cemetery doesn't hurt either. Local teens call it the Dead Children's Playground, a macabre name for a place still used by families. So how did the innocent place get its gruesome name? According to legend, many children who died in Huntsville during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic are buried in Maple Hill plots adjoining the playground. It said the spirits of these children come out after dark to run and play as they might have in life. An online search turns up photos of unexplained shadows and orbs. It is true many children, as well as adults, died during the worldwide pandemic, which killed an estimated 50 million people world, worldwide and hit Huntsville particularly hard. Hospital beds were filled and doctors were working long shifts in hopes of easing some of the patient's misery. Many patients were treated at home with large quarantine signs on the doors, a practice which resulted in, in the disease spreading throughout the entire family. Bodies were often stacked on wagons and hauled to the morgues by horses. According to the Alabama Department of Public Health, the dreadful flu season arrived in Alabama by way of Huntsville on September, September 25, 1918, and within 10 days it had spread. On October 7th, the governor of Alabama ordered closure of public places statewide including stores, schools, and churches. Wow, how familiar is that, guys? By October 13th, the Birmingham News was reporting that only one local pharmacist and one local doctor remained uninfected. A desperate situation arose in Huntsville, growing out of the Spanish flu pandemic. All druggists, physicians, and prescription clerks, except one, have been stricken with the disease in a distressing 
uphill reached Montgomery last night in telegrams for immediate help for the stricken city. Although there is no official count of the number of children who died in Huntsville during the pandemic or how many were buried in Maple Hill, the number must have been in the hundreds. For mothers wanting their children to hurry home at dark, the legend of the witch-like Huggin' Molly was a helper. For children, she was just downright frightening. The legend of Huggin' Molly is unique to the Alabama town of Abbeville, and though its origins are unclear, it was a story passed down through generations. Jimmy Rain, founder of Great Southern Wood Preserving, known to most for its product, Yellowwood, is an Abbeville native who opened a restaurant named for the legend. The family-style eatery, filled with vintage signs and movie poster collected by Rain, helps draw residents and visitors to the downtown area that Rain is helping to revitalize. Anybody who grew up in Abbeville knew, grew up knowing the legend of Hug and Molly, Rain said. If your mother or dad didn't want you to be out after dark, they'd tell you Hug and Molly would get you and you would believe it. Legend claims a phantom woman would appear to children, but, but only at night. She would squeeze them tightly, then scream in their ears. She never harmed anyone, and perhaps just caused ringing in their ears. The figure was as much as seven feet tall, wearing dark clothing and a wide-rimmed hat. One version of the story claims Molly was the ghost of a woman who had lost an infant who dealt with the tragedy by hugging local children. Another states Molly was a professor at the former Southeast Alabama Agricultural School who was trying to keep students safe by keeping them off the streets at night. Rain said he and childhood friend Tommy Murphy heard the story from Murphy's father who said he knew Huggin' Molly was real because he had experienced one of her hugs as a child and that was enough to convince the boys. This is one of my favorite stories from Alabama. It's about the metal man. The woman on the other end of the telephone call was frantic. Falkville, Alabama, police chief Jeff Greenhaw answered the telephone shortly before 10 p.m. the night of October 17, 1973, and heard the excited voice of a resident of rural Falkville claim a spaceship had landed just outside town in a field. The chief grabbed his camera and left the station, arriving at the site of the landing at precisely 10 p.m. There was no ship in the field. There was, however, a monster. Greenhaw encountered a bipedal creature wrapped in metal, and it advanced on him, according to an article written by B.J. Booth for NICAP. It looked like his head and neck were kind of made together. When Greenhaw trained his police cruiser headlights on it, the creature bolted across the field. Greenhaw pushed the car to 35 miles per hour across the bumpy terrain, but the monster quickly outdistanced it. He was running faster than any human I ever saw, Greenhaw reported. 
Although the metal monster was never seen again, neither was the ship. The entity could be wandering in northern Alabama even to this day. Over 30 years ago, Fred Work saw something he couldn't quite explain. What's easier to explain is the way that Work's sighting changed the DNA of his town forever. It was a thick, charcoal-colored triangle that flew over the night sky with three lights shining back from the undercarriage. From Work's spot on a hillside back in February of 1989, he saw the craft glide toward him before flying overhead, and he isn't alone. Work's UFO experience began earlier that Friday night when a woman called the local dispatcher to report an immobile light in the sky. When Works got word of the call from the dispatcher, he was just ending his shift at the Fife, Alabama Police Department. Despite his attempt to pass the call off on his boss, then Chief Chief of Police, Junior Garmony, Works ended up coming along for the ride. As Garmony and Works headed toward Kelly's Chapel, their caller's location, they spotted the light back to their left. Garmony stopped the car and we looked at it for a bit, Works said. It looked about the size of a street light in the distance. After trailing the light for some time, several local police officers planned to meet up at the top of Sand Mountain, where they would hopefully get a better look at whatever was flying over DeKalb County. They watched it fly southwest over the valley, Work said, and he thought his night of, U of UFO chasing was over and done with. Garmony drove the patrol car back to Fife, with Work still keeping his eyes to the heavens in the passenger seat. Then another call came, this time over the radio. A police officer in Crossville reported that a craft went over him flying low and fast. With Work's eyes on the sky, Garmony pointed the car south and found a place to pull over in the wide circular driveway of a local farmer. They got out of the car and took a look around. I turned and looked back to the east, Work said. I saw a craft flying coming straight at us over the tree line. Works assumed it, it must be a plane, but as the craft neared, he realized there was something not quite right about the oncoming craft. Works asked Garmony to shut off the car engine, and the eerie quiet that followed confirmed his suspicion about the craft, Works said. It was deadly silent. As it flew overhead, Works scanned it for identifying markings, but came up empty. All he could take in was a dark triangle flying against the starry sky so big that it would have taken holding a beach ball at arm's length overhead to block it from his sight. Knowing there was something off about the not plane, Works was still hesitant to consider that it was a UFO. Instead, 
He surmised that what others might consider a space booger could have been a military aircraft. I would think it was probably government or something, Work said. It was probably some kind of new craft that we might know about 10 years in the future. Work said he hadn't even planned to mention the encounter, except he imagined as a war story passed down at family gatherings. That idea is familiar to others who've seen UFOs. In fact, multiple UFO spotters have visited works to get their stories off of their chests. People are always calling to talk to Fred, Fife Town Clerk Brandy Clayton said. But when reporters got wind of the story, works in the city were inundated with outside opinions and inquiries. While some spectators were purely curious, others painted the town in an inaccurate light. The media wanted to put words in my mouth then, Work said. Want to put you on camera, have a reporter come up and stick a microphone in your face. So, Chief Works, you saw a flying saucer. And I'd say, the last, last flying saucer I saw, my ex-wife threw at me. Petrifaction is sponsored by LegacyBrewing.shop, home of the best gourmet coffee. It's about the coffee there, and at LegacyBrewing.shop, you can find basically all your coffee needs, from flavored coffees to mugs and even coffee machines. Check us out at LegacyBrewing.shop. The Vanishment of Orion Williamson Orion Williamson was a farmer who lived with his wife and son in a farmhouse in Selma, Alabama. One sunny July afternoon in 1854, he was sitting on his front porch with his family. As neighbors, the wrens, were passing by, Orion stood up to move his grazing horses to the shade. He briefly stopped to pick up a stick which he absently swished back and forth as he walked in the ankle-deep grass. Orion waved to the neighbors, took one step, and vanished into thin air. Hardly able to believe their eyes, the Williamsons and the Wrens ran to the spot Orion disappeared in and searched for any sign of him. They found none, and most of the grass in the spot was gone too. After hours of futile searching, Orion's shocked family and friends went for help. A search party of 300 men was formed, and they carefully and repeatedly combed every inch of the field. Later, bloodhounds joined the search. No sign of Orion materialized, even though the effort continued well into the night. As news of the inexplicable vanishment spread, more volunteers and a team of geologists arrived. They dug up the field to see if the ground was in any way unstable or unusual. There was only solid rock a few feet below the surface. No holes, no crevices, no cavens, nothing that could explain the event. Reportedly, Mrs. Williamson and her son could hear Orion's voice calling for help for weeks afterwards. Growing fainter and fainter. Each time they would rush out onto the field only to find nothing, and gradually Orion's voice faded into a mere whisper 
then disappeared forever. After no amount of searching turned up anything, the judge declared Orion dead. The following spring, it is said, a circle of dead grass appeared to mark the spot of the unlucky farmer's disappearance. The German scientist Maximilian Hearn, author of the book Disappearance and Theory Thereof, speculated that Orion walked into a spot of universal ether. He believed these places lasted a few seconds and could completely destroy all matter within them. Another scientist theorized a magnetic field had disintegrated Orion's atomic structure and sent him into another dimension. To me, that sounds even less likely than the goblins did it. Years later, a traveling salesman named McHatton rewrote the Williamson disappearance. And in his story, Orion's name became David Lang. And the place changed to Gallatin. And the date was moved to the 1880s. Even though the Lang story is fictional, the basic facts are presented as truth. And consequently, this story is better known than the real vanishment behind it. Hey friends, this is Petey. I have something special for you. Have you noticed I haven't done a lot of hauntings and ghost stories? Oh, that's not by accident, friends. Halloween is just around the corner. October is my favorite month of the year. I love Halloween. That's kind of why I love doing this podcast, because with Petrifaction, we can have Halloween stories all year long. I love it. But for Halloween, I wanted to do something special in October. And I decided that October for Petrifaction is going to be stories about ghosts and hauntings to get in the mood for Halloween. I hope you like that idea, too. So come back next time. We're going to have another show featuring a ghost story or a haunted hotel or haunted mansion or whatever. It's going to be about ghosts and hauntings. That's all, friends. Be petrified. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at Petey at Petrifaction at ProtonMail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.